Let's just continue in an attitude of prayer for a couple more minutes. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have provided us this opportunity to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not just once a year as is the cultural norm, but for us, as is the kingdom of God norm, every week when we gather, we recognize on this Lord's Day that our Lord Jesus Christ rules and reigns from the heavenlies, that his word is eternal, it is relevant, it is quick and active, it is life-giving, essential, and effective for our lives. And so as we open its pages today, remind our hearts that in here are the keys to life and godliness. In here is a refreshing wellspring, the source of hope, encouragement, conviction, and worship, Lord, for us, your people. Remind us to refresh our minds each week with the glorious truths therein contained as we open the Scriptures in our times of worship with you and with our families. And may your Scriptures be on our heart and our lips as we bring the truth of the Gospel wherever you lead us in the course of our lives this week. And all that you might be glorified. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. I'm praising God for the opportunity to open up His Scriptures today. And I'd encourage you to open them with me in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, we're approaching the third great discourse. And so far, with the labels that I've attached to the discourses in Matthew, the first one, we identified aspects of the constitution of the kingdom of God in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And then in Matthew chapter 10, we read of the commission of the first wave of disciples that went two by two and in other Gospels record about 70 or so in number and began to spread the message that Jesus Christ had given them that the kingdom of God is among you even at hand around the area of Judea. And then here in chapter 13 or in chapter 12 as we're approaching chapter 13, we'll soon be in the third discourse of Matthew, which perhaps emphasizes most of all comparisons metaphors, parables of the kingdom of God. And then there's two others. But in this chapter 12 that we've been reading from in anticipation of Jesus' third great sermon in this book, it occurred to me the authority of Jesus Christ as evidenced by all of history and even the story of the gospel and the writing in the scriptures bowing to his every purpose on every page, in every scenario, in every occasion, and in every aspect of the record of Jesus Christ walking this earth and preaching the gospel. So in Matthew 12, to summarize the theme of this chapter, I chose the title of this sermon to be History Bows. That is, history itself, the record of all time for all of everything for all time bows to the authority and lordship of Christ. And I think in the record of Jesus' interaction in the affairs of this world, we see that the events that surrounded the ministry of Jesus Christ were in fact the bowing of history to his lordship. Let me explain it perhaps this way. To illustrate the scope of God's sovereignty, Martin Luther was quoted as saying, even the devil is God's devil. That was one of Luther's quotes, kind of a one-liner that describes the scope of God's sovereignty. Yes, the enemy of our souls is wicked. Yes, the devil is responsible for evil. 
But one thing the devil cannot do is ultimately subvert the will and intention of Almighty God. Even the devil is, the, is God's devil. In Revelation 17, 17, John speaks of the characters of history that are outside of the immediate redemptive purposes of God in, in verse 15 as the people, the multitudes, the languages, and nations that God shows His purposes in judgment for, and verse 17 is quoted as saying, For God has put it into their hearts, that is, these people, multitudes, nations, and languages, to carry out His purposes by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the word words of God are fulfilled. This is the picture in eschatological, if you will, that is, final language or the completion of time language of God's ultimate sovereignty. Every aspect, every entity, every story, every detail serves God's ultimate purposes. Even the devil and his intentions are indeed a pawn in the hand of Almighty God on the chessboard of history, as it were, to accomplish His ultimate governing glorious ends. A picture of this kind in Revelation, of inevitable submission of every aspect and element of history to Christ's ultimate purposes, is also available for us to marvelously examine in Matthew chapter 12. And here I'd like to highlight this morning that the very elements of narrative itself, the very elements of story, and we'll cover three today, setting, conflict, and characters. These very elements of telling the story of Jesus Christ, they themselves bow to His will and ministry and serve to proclaim the kingdom of heaven as we turn over every scenario and every scene of this unfolding, glorious story of Jesus Christ walking the earth and sharing His kingdom. So heading for today's message, perhaps could be as follows. Narrative examples, three narrative examples of how every occasion served Christ's purposes in just one chapter, Matthew chapter 12. So these are narrative examples, that is story element examples of how every occasion served Christ's purposes in Matthew chapter 12. I was trying to come up with a way or a concept or an illustration to exhibit exactly the power and the authority and the glory of what is portrayed here. And I came up short. But God, we know, is the author of Scripture. Yet He's also, in Christ, the subject of this story. And it's as if, as Christ is walking, that everything plays into his hand. Yes, there are forces that oppose him. There are men that hate him. There's a devil who has set himself in enmity against his every purpose. But in spite of themselves, whether they be Pharisees or the enemy of our soul who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, whether they be doubters, naysayers, or demons themselves, Every oppositional force to the work of Christ serves a purpose to play into his ministry to help him either illustrate or emphasize a point, underscore a truth of the kingdom of God, demonstrate his own power and authority, and time and time again we see this in the gospel. And just to anticipate the application at the close of this message, 
understand that the circumstances in our lives and the way events unfold today no less serve the very same purpose. Sometimes we think of the Gospels as a unique chapter in history where for a particular time, circumstances were ordered to serve God's glory and purpose perhaps more emphatically so than in other periods of time, like the Old Testament, the New or the era that we live in today. But such is not the case. In fact, since in the beginning God, to the ultimate culmination and consummation of all of history and glory eternal every moment, has and will serve God's ultimate purposes, His will and intentions to reveal Himself and to amplify His glory and His name through the things that exist and the situations that happen. So whether by reflection or contrast, God will always and has always got the glory. In Matthew chapter 12, read with me in verse 1. And notice, if you will, the narrative elements, and the first one we'll consider is setting. Verse 1, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered into the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor those who are with him, but only for the priests. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests at the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, verse 6, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus' main point in this interaction is twofold, perhaps, or could be summarized in two phrases. Something greater than the temple is here. And then an answer to the question of who is the greater. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. But notice the setting. Where are we? Well, if we put ourselves in the story, I imagine myself following Jesus' footsteps alongside his disciples. I like to read in my imagination back in time and to just consider what it would be like to follow him at a time like this. I'm sure I would have been nervous. I'm along with the disciples. Here I am picking grain on the Sabbath. And lo and behold, the authorities of what the Sabbath means culturally are standing before us. And it's like getting arrested, maybe pulled over. You have to answer for yourself for your unlawful behavior. But to Jesus, this was, of course, no surprise. And instead, it was divinely orchestrated. This situation, notice the setting. It served the purposes of his declaration of authority perfectly. Because it happened on the Sabbath. Because they were walking through a grain field. Both the time of day and the time of the Jewish calendar. The fact that it was on a designated holy day, the Sabbath, and because his disciples were eating some of this grain as they passed through this field, it provided Christ the perfect opportunity by the Heavenly Father's sovereign design in this occasion to show that something greater than the temple was here and that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. We see in the setting of Matthew chapter 12 this truth 
revealed for us, everywhere Christ traveled was intentional. You know, think about the reason why you get into the car and fire it up and fill it with gas and go to Costco. You know, Highway 6 is just a necessary inconvenience to get you from point A to the grocery store. And we seldom think of this, you know, the sovereign purposes. It's more of a question of utility and why we go from our house to our shopping place or wherever. And if you're like me, a lot of times you daze and doze off. Well, you shouldn't doze off while you're driving. I'm guilty of that too. I'm coming up with creative ways to keep myself awake on the road, like listening to podcasts. But usually that time when we travel is considered expendable. Why? Because as finite creatures with short-sighted understanding, we fail to realize that every single moment has purpose. Jesus Christ, the perfect man, understood this. Every single moment has purpose. We see in the command for how we should think about our lives as believers in the Scriptures that prayer without ceasing means that every single moment is communion for the believer and has purpose. And I have set my mind, the psalmist says, among other things, to meditate on the law of God day and night. There is no useless time. There's no incidental occasions. There is no time that's expendable or worthless or disposable. Jesus Christ understood this and evidenced that even in the setting. This practical journey to go somewhere and the fact that they were hungry and needed food served His glory and purposes, and it was intentional. Perhaps the most dramatic example of this intentionality where Jesus was situated, His setting where He was located and where He did things came to my attention this week. I was listening to another message. And the remark came from, the detail that was highlighted was from Matthew 24. And uh, I believe it's the final discourse in Matthew, the Olivet Discourse. And this is where Jesus is pronouncing judgment. Son of man is going to come suddenly like a thief in the night. And the people who are there at that time will be surprised unless they consider him a prophet. Take and heed his words seriously and get out of Jerusalem when they see it surrounded by armies. Well, at the time when Jesus is delivering this message, this oracle of judgment, He has moved, and you see it there in Matthew 24, verse 13. He has walked from the temple itself to the Mount of Olives. This was intentional. It was brought to my attention why, just why Christ might have moved and taken that path while he was speaking about the temple itself being destroyed, why he was moving from the Temple Mount to the Mount of Olives. And lo and behold, we find in Ezekiel 11, verses 22 through 24, that is indeed the exact path that the glory of God took when the prophet declared that the glory of God moved from the temple and then took residence at the Mount of Olives. So this prophetic act of Jesus was more than just his words. It was his journey. It was the setting. It was his actions. Jesus Christ knew fully perfectly, completely, every detail of the Old Testament. And I'll tell you, that ought to awaken our hearts with the joy of discovery. I wonder how many other places in Scripture. Connections to the Old Testament and the New is something that we would consider as incidental or, or as, as basic and, and, you know, and trivial as setting might reveal to us. This to make the point that everywhere Christ traveled was intentional. 
under setting, I've already showed you that the fact that this was on a Sabbath in the daytime was significant. It provided the opportunity for the Lord of glory to show that He was the Lord of the law. We've mentioned in his Jesus' first discourse that when He says, Verily I say unto you, it's a qualification, it's an introduction of His words that follow that indicate His authority. That Jesus Christ is Lord of the law. He in and of Himself has the authority to declare. And so we see this authority when Jesus interprets the significance of the Sabbath, much to the Pharisees' chagrin, who thought they themselves were the arbiters, the keepers, and the enforcers of the law. The setting provided Jesus the occasion to teach us and to show them to demonstrate His authority by differing with the rulers, rulers of His day. Secondly, notice where he moves. This again under setting, we go from this daytime traveling on the Sabbath to the synagogue in verse 9. It says, he went on from there and entered their synagogue. So he's come through a field, he's approached this building, and he's gone inside. We've commented before that in just man's short-sighted view, this would be surprising. He's already really pushed it with the authorities, the Pharisees so far, Why would he put himself in an even more provocative situation? Well, again, it's by intention. Verse 10, And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So now he's declared, The Sabbath and its purposes, its lawful intent by his own authority in a field, and he's done it in the synagogue. Then in verse 13, we have the record of the exclamation point of Jesus' authority here, not just with mere words, but also with actions. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. Verse 13, the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. And notice this was done in the presence of the Pharisees. And it didn't exactly impress them in the way that one might think. But this too is by intention. Verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So we see again in the setting of the Gospels. Everywhere Christ traveled was intentional. Whether it was on the Sabbath in this daytime journey. Whether it was in the synagogue in this conflict and altercation with the authorities where Jesus underscored His authority by a mighty healing and declared that He is Lord over even the liturgy and the worship and the assembly of their day, the setting was significant. And number three, to make the point everywhere Christ traveled was intentional, we see Him in a house. We're not immediately aware of this fact. In verse 15, it says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed Him, and He healed them all and ordered them not to make known, but later on we find out where he withdrew to. And we see in this scene of the narrative where Jesus moved on to in the next scene, and this would be picked up in chapter 13, verse 1. After Jesus had continued his statements, in this section it says, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. So here we have this trajectory, this plot uh, structure or this timeline jesus is going through the fields he enters a synagogue and number three he's in a house now this becomes significant 
as we explore what Jesus was saying to the people in this house. He uses the term house as a metaphor a number of times in what he has declared. Notice, for instance, in verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Later on, he uses the analogy of this structure, house, this residence again. In verse 43, or 44, he says, Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, speaking to the activity of these spiritual forces, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they shall enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first, so also it will be with this, with this evil generation. So you see it again, that this sovereign situation, where the setting of what Jesus is declaring has proven a perfect, useful tool for Him to declare these truths. He, in this house, now uses it as a metaphor to demonstrate aspects of the kingdom of God. The house of the human being, which either is the taken up, or which is lived in by either spiritual forces for good, the Holy Spirit, or forces for evil, demons and their friends, when they find it swept clean. And also he refers to the kingdom of God and the activity of the stronger man in saying that just like a man loses occupation and control of his house when one with superior weapons and superior forces there, so I have taken over the residence of the enemy And this house is mine now because I have bound the stronger man. This world is my residence. Your heart will be my residence if I redeem you. And so Jesus says in these two examples, using his setting as the metaphor, the relation, he says that there is a significance, the idea of residence in relationship to him. And then finally under setting, I find it fascinating that he moves outdoors again. He's begun outdoors, then he moves outside again in 13.1. It says, that same day as Jesus went out of the house, he sat beside the sea. And then as Jesus is back outside declaring again, he launches into discourse number three, which we'll cover in future weeks, Lord willing, where he compares the kingdom of God to things that you might think about when you're outdoors, chiefly plantings, seed that is sown and scattered. And these parables of like the mustard seed and the stony and the fertile soil and so on are forthcoming as Jesus sits in the open air and teaches another aspect about the kingdom. Everywhere Jesus traveled was intentional. Secondly, let's explore conflict. These narrative examples of how every occasion served Christ's purposes in teaching. We've mentioned setting, but secondly, the conflict. We've covered this to some degree, but I just want to give it a brief overview again. Under conflict, I've written everything Jesus encountered was intentional. Not just everywhere Jesus traveled, that's easy enough for us to imagine, because in our minds we can conceive of ourselves planning from point A to point B and taking a certain journey. But in our own minds, it's harder to imagine anticipating exactly what we will encounter especially by way of adversity, as we go to our destination. But remember, Jesus Christ, no such thing was the case. 
Jesus Christ, when he encountered the forces that opposed him, every single one was anticipated and intentional. It served the purpose of emphasizing the gospel. The conflict that Jesus incurred was not something that distracted or hindered the purposes of God. Instead, it emphasized and taught the things that Jesus was conveying to us. It displayed, whether people opposed Christ or agreed with Him, certain things that are valuable and display His glory to us, and it's fascinating to consider them as we read. First of all, notice in chapter 12, verses 14 through 21, that the Pharisees, the arch nemesis of Jesus Christ, they themselves, in opposing Him, allowed for the fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 14, reading again, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So how could that be a good thing, we might ask? Well, we continue to read verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Now, before I mention that verse 17 This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. This seems to be shaping up like any other average narrative. For pragmatic reasons, perhaps, Jesus wants to keep a low profile. He doesn't want to be too provocative because it will hinder his intent to continue to be popular and get his message out. No, there's a deeper, more sovereign reason behind this conflict. And indeed, it is spoken of directly in verse 17. This was... That is, this conflict was, and Jesus' reaction to it, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Then verse 18 through 21, quote the Old Testament scriptures, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen. Notice the language of intent there. My servant whom I have chosen. My beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. And so we have, in the greater scope of the gospel, evident in the conflict against Jesus, the fulfillment of the character of the Messiah. He would be one who would be facing adversity, suffering and death, but he would humbly submit to the Father's plan to endure those stripes, that mockery, that beating, that abuse for the sake of his elect, his own. His stripes that were taken humbly and submissively on the back of the Messiah would be the wounds that would purchase our spiritual ultimate healing. And if there was no conflict, there would have been no wounds. And if there were no oppositional forces, there would have been no sacrifice, no cross, and consequently no propitiatory fulfillment of the will of God to make sufficient and final payment according to the book of Hebrews for our sins. And so the conflict, the Pharisees, the haters of Christ, the ones who never would have dreamed they were fulfilling prophecy in spite of themselves, We're falling in lockstep with God's ultimate purposes. 
I'd like to remind you of a verse that we read that is striking and underscores this fact. Last week in Acts chapter 13, we were remarking about the significance of the resurrection to the gospel that was proclaimed through the mouth of the apostles like Paul. And in this case, he's speaking to the church or would-be church at Antioch. And as Paul is declaring the historical circumstances of the crucified and resurrected and ascended Christ, he brings to the attention of the crowd this point in verse 27. He says, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every, every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Notice the language there. How everything Jesus encountered, even the conflict, was intentional. It's ironic, yet glorious all the while, as we see here that in this case, in Matthew chapter 12, he was in the synagogue where presumably the law had just been proclaimed, and if not that day, certainly every other day when people gathered there. And in the synagogue, he is confronted by the Pharisees, they push him out, and indeed they begin at this moment in the gospel to conspire against him how they might destroy him. And the apostle tells us exactly what is going on. Along with the gospel writer Matthew, Paul says that because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets which are read in every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning him. They were indeed falling lockstep into God the Father's perfect and ultimate plan for the salvation of mankind. Without conflict, there would have been no opportunity to demonstrate the suffering servanthood, the sacrifice and the submission to the will of the Father that begins to unfold as we continue to read Jesus leading up to the events of the cross, the passion, and then the resurrection and the ascension and the great commission. Second area of conflict, we've mentioned Pharisees fulfilling prophecy. But secondly, both the demons and the doubters throughout the Gospels provide a wealth of teachable moments. Notice in verse 22, for instance, the demons are active and they have been oppressing this particular man. But talk about a teachable moment. Talk about a dramatic opportunity to display the glory of Christ. That a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And he, that is Christ, healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? This was a teachable moment. There are some who had a shred of belief, perhaps, a crack in the window of revelation, the first dawning rays of the sunrise of God's promises streaming into their souls. Can this be the son of David? But what was it that brought to their attention the reality that these miracles unfolding before them might be evidence that the day that they had hoped for and longed for for generations was at the threshold of their own doorstep? What was it? It was the conflict with the forces of evil. It was the work of demons and the effects of demons on this man that provided Christ the opportunity to demonstrate his spiritual power superior to the worst that the enemy could offer. That allowed the hearts of men to be drawn to the reality. This could be the one. Verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, 
It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he, Jesus, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And notice here how the doubters, again the Pharisees, provided a teachable moment for Christ. He was able to demonstrate by the absurdity of their claim to the ears who were willing to hear that he had superior power. And therefore, all kingdoms of this world, all kingdoms of this earth, and indeed all principalities and powers that reign in the heavenly places are subordinate to the Lord Christ. Every single one. He says in verse 26, If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But, verse 28, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. The demons, the doubters, the conflict, they provided teachable moments for Christ. Therefore, we can see everything displayed in the Gospels that Christ encountered by way of people bowing the knee to his lordship. And even the conflict of his enemies, both spiritual and physical, was indeed intentional and served the purpose to demonstrate his glory and provide these teachable moments to reveal to us, even the readers now, thousands of years removed, the power of Jesus Christ over the kingdoms of darkness in this world. And thirdly, under conflict, everything Jesus encountered was intentional. We see that it provided the opportunity, this budding of heads of the authorities, to show the terms and conditions. Matthew Henry says this, the terms and conditions of the kingdom of God, that is. Matthew Henry gives us this quote, and I think it's a great summary of something that we can learn from verses 38 through 42, which we'll read in a moment. He says, It is natural to proud men to prescribe to God and then to make that an excuse for not subscribing to Him. But a man's offense will never be his defense. Listen again carefully because this is so prevalent in our day. It is natural for men to provide, or sorry, for proud men to prescribe to God and then to make that an excuse for not subscribing to Him. But a man's offense will never be his defense. I submit to you that in modern, the eyes of most modern men today, this is indeed a description of where they stand. They propose to set terms and conditions on God. I will believe perhaps in a God if I can be assured that He is thus and so, or if He reveals Himself in such and such a way. But until then... I withhold my belief, and I am content to remain skeptical, resistant. And what is he doing in that situation? That attitude of heart betrays exactly what Matthew Henry is saying. He's prescribing to God a test. If you be the God of the Scriptures, or if you really exist, why don't you show me by doing this? Why did you let my mother die? Why are there starving children in third world countries? If you are really God, why is evil so rampant on the earth? I prescribe to you, God, that you answer that sufficiently or fulfill my concept of what I think you should do sufficiently and then I'll believe in you. 
He's prescribing to God conditions. And notice what that makes him. That makes him judge and jury over the Almighty. Where does that place him in standing in relationship to the Almighty? Well, unless he confesses, he will be destroyed. There is no mocking of God that will ever be suffered in the grand scheme of things. None. Every mocker will be destroyed. The proud and the haughty will be torn down. The rod of iron will eventually shatter that clay pot. And its shards will be scattered across the landscape of history with all the other fools who prescribed to God certain terms and conditions and then said, since you don't meet them, I retain an excuse not to believe in you, not to subscribe to you. Man might be offended at the God revealed in Scripture. Man may not understand the God revealed in Scripture. He may have a difficult time wrapping his mind around the sovereign truths therein contained, but that will never be, never be a defense for him at the throne Almighty when he says, this is the reason why I didn't believe in you. Notice verse 38. There was no... It was no, the offense of the Pharisees was no just cause for them to oppose Christ either. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You notice how Jesus says, If the attitude of the generation is, Come to us on our terms. We presume to be judge over you. They've indeed committed adultery against the Almighty. They've overstepped the covenant bounds of their relationship. They're setting themselves up as the sovereign over God. And he says, no such generation, no such attitude will receive a sign except that of the prophet Jonah, which is a sign of judgment. Verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He goes on, goes on to describe the unlikely witnesses. It's the men of Nineveh that will rise up in judgment with this generation condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, again, he uses this language, argument from the lesser to the greater. Something greater than Jonah is here, even as he's already said something greater than the temple is here. The queen of the south will rise up, verse 42, at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, Something greater than Solomon is here. And so we see the conflict of terms and conditions as a teachable moment revealing to us that the terms and conditions of God is that He is God, He is sovereign, He reveals Himself on His own terms. And we as subordinate, fallen, sinful creatures, depraved and rebellious, must bow before His Lordship and plead mercy and only mercy Because we do not have a leg to stand on. We cannot make a single demand. We do not retain any rights before the God of glory to plead our case before Him. Our only hope is the blood of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, narrative examples of how every occasion served Christ's purposes. We've discussed setting and we've meditated on this conflict that Jesus encounters in this chapter. And thirdly, I'd like to highlight the characters that we see here. I have a tagline that I've borrowed from an apologist. And he's quoted as saying, All men are in a relationship with God. You've often heard people say, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Well, it was brought to my attention recently that it is, in one sense, correct to say that not just the believer, 
but the unbeliever is in a relationship with God. That is, there is a covenant with sanctions that binds the two together. Now, there are only two covenant heads in Scripture. We know them as Adam, according to the book of Romans, or Christ. So there are literally two kinds of people in the world, spiritually speaking. Those who are in relationship to Almighty God through their covenant head, Adam, and those who are in relationship to Almighty God through their covenant head, Christ. Adam broke his covenant. He and all his seed will be condemned, justly so, and destroyed unless they can find refuge in a new covenant head. Basic, systematic, covenantal theology in that covenant head, of course, is Jesus Christ. And the relationships and the characters, or the relationships between the characters of this narrative provide the opportunity for Jesus to gloriously show that relationship with, the God, with God Almighty based on grace and not judgment as He's already declared is possible through Him. And therein is such a great hope. Turn to the final few verses and read with me 46 through 50. While He was still speaking to the people, behold, His mother and His brothers stood outside asking to speak to Him. But He replied, Jesus replied to the man who told Him, Who is my mother? And Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In these final words, before discourse number three, the characters of this story, and particularly the ones in familial relationship, filial relationship with Jesus, provided him the opportunity to demonstrate that through his redemptive work and through the message of the kingdom of God, received truly in the hearts of his disciples, a relationship with God was possible. One of intimacy on caliber with the closest relationships and even infinitely more so we can possibly imagine on this earth. Who are my mothers? Who are my brothers? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The true nature of the family of God is rooted in our conversion. The gospel goes on to declare, and for instance, gospels, I should say, in John chapter 3, Jesus says to the inquiring Pharisee, under little different conditions than was typical for them, he tells him, you must be born again. Again, the language of family, of rebirth, recreation. You must be born again, that is, born as a child, into a new family relationship with Father God, such that as my disciple, you can now be brothers with me, that is, brothers with Christ. Such thoughts are so high, they're nearly unfathomable for us. I'm thankful for the language and the analogy of family that we have, which helps communicate to us, even today, sovereignly so, as we study that there are no accidents in history related to the message and the revelation of God, that even the family relationships that you may enjoy, and I pray you do, can communicate to you that as much as you enjoy and appreciate them, take refuge and comfort in them, infinitely more so in Christ, 
is your relationship to your heavenly Father. You must be born again. But this birth is not of natural means, spiritual. Galatians 3, 7 through 9 says, among other things, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And so as we bring this message to a close this morning, perhaps we can ask ourselves this question by way of application. Where do we find ourselves in the ultimate story of God's revelation today and His ultimate purposes this morning? Are we standing in Him? Are we family with Christ because and only because of His blood? Or are we standing soon to fall and be judged in contradistinction to Him that is opposed in our attitude like the Pharisees, the demons, the doubters, and the naysayers who sought to pick a fight with Him at every possible opportunity. If we can find ourselves in that first camp, those who are in our covenant head Christ, then we have all the reason to overflow in praise and worship this morning and every morning that God gives us enough breath and opportunity to think about the manifold graces revealed, the gospel through Him, through the Bible, and through every occasion that He has sovereignly ordained. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we thank You for the majestic picture of Your Lordship your glory and salvation that we see in the Scriptures. I pray that as we go over and meditate on perhaps some of what we've read this week, or wherever Your Spirit leads us to peruse, Father, in our devotions, that You would write on the table of our hearts, Lord, the things that reveal Yourself so gloriously in so many manifold ways in the pages of Scripture. I pray, Lord, that with this discipline of letting our thoughts and imaginations be captivated, meditating on the glories of Christ revealed in Scripture, that you would also quicken our understanding and affections to love the things of you and the truth and the promises of the Scripture and the Gospel more than anything else in this life. I pray this morning for any in this room that may have doubts or discouragement that they are wrestling with. I pray that the evidence of your sovereignty in every occasion in the Gospels would communicate to them that every occasion of their life is serving your great good for them and ultimately your glory. And if there are any here, Father, who do not know with assurance that they are in Jesus Christ and therefore are in right standing with you, I pray that you would change the orientation and attitude of their heart so that they might place no demands on Christ, but demonstrate in their repentance that they are utterly dependent on Him confess their sin, repent, turn from their wicked ways, and trust that Jesus Christ's blood alone is sufficient payment to get them in right standing with you, not only today, but for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.